Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, it's hard to believe that uh, at the start of 2022, we are essentially moving into our third year of coping with the coronavirus, um, which many people had anticipated. Well, we remember back when we thought in uh, March of 2020 that maybe offices would be shut down for a few months Things would get back to normal, and uh, we'd all be fine again. We stretch now to, as I say, moving toward three, three years of coping with COVID. For, for a great many people, it's been a tragic time as they've lost people they love, care about deeply. Um, there's been an enormous amount of suffering among people who have survived the virus but uh, went through terrible ordeals in dealing with it and in many cases have uh, long-term problems that the virus has created. But for an awful lot of, of, of us who have been fortunate to avoid um, the illness, um, it's been a time of extraordinary frustration, of uh, a sense of dislocation, and um, an ongoing concern, almost a surrealistic concern about what is our life like today. And I say all that to point out that the new variant, the Omicron variant, has once again raised a number of issues about how are we supposed to behave, how do we protect ourselves, how do we work on mitigation of a virus that uh, continues to um, overshadow almost all aspects of our lives. Um, so I'm very glad that we've got Dr. Carlos Del Rio back with us uh, to talk about where we stand with the virus. Um, you've heard him on this show many times. And of course, in addition to his medical duties at Grady Hospital, he's been a ubiquitous presence on uh, CNN and other news outlets, helping people understand where we stand. And again, I'm very happy he's uh, been so available to join us here. He, of course, is the Executive Associate Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and the Grady Health Systems, in, in addition to any number of other titles that he um, holds. So we're very happy, and we'll talk to him in just a minute. I do want to introduce our other panelists. Uh, Tamar Hallerman is back. She's my Tuesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, senior reporter at the AJC. And Tamar, I think a fair question to ask, actually, you, and I'll ask Ellen, uh, too, how is this newest virus uh, variant, how, how are you dealing with this yourself, just in your personal life? I mean, a little bit day by day and week by week. This week, I was actually supposed to be in Washington for the first time since <laughs> I, I moved down to Atlanta, catching up with old friends. And I decided to postpone my trip just because, first of all, they had just a wave of infections in D.C. And it felt like every friend of mine was quarantining or, or isolating. And it just I didn't feel like I could do it and do it safely and be able to sleep at night. I was also seeing my parents over the holiday break and they're both in their upper 60s. And thankfully, they don't have any pre-existing conditions or or anything like that. But I was still scared to um, expose them to anything. So it, I really changed my behavior in the lead up to that trip just to make sure I wasn't bringing anything home. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'm awfully glad you're here today um, to help us with our conversation with Carlos Del Rio. Ellen Eldridge is the uh, uh, senior uh, health reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting. You know, Ellen, um, Tamar said something that was interesting to me, too. I've been thinking about the fact that throughout this entire pandemic, it's been rare that I have actually known people who have the virus. They just haven't been part of my sphere out there. All of a sudden, Ellen, with Omicron, everybody seems to be reporting their positive. It's just explosive how many people, at least in the circle of folks that I know, are suddenly saying, yes, I'm positive. Most of them, fortunately, not terribly sick. What's, how is it affecting you right now, especially with your children? Yeah, um, my I was thrilled that I was able to get both of my children vaccinated, you know, just ahead of the holidays and take some time off. And, and this new variant is surging and making us all worried about sending them back to school. Over over the holidays, I had plans with some friends that I did not cancel because they were outdoor plans. But it's just like you said, many people in my sphere have not been saying that they had tested positive and And now many of them are and they're more often than not breakthrough infections that they, they have been vaccinated. So thankfully, I haven't known anybody who's been seriously ill since before the vaccinations were available. Um, let's now get to Dr. Carlos uh, Del Rio. Dr. Del Rio, again, thank you so much for being here today. How has this latest variant been impacting you? I mean, you've got to work at the hospital, I know, but you also have Uh, your own personal concerns about what happens to you and your family in the midst of all this? Well, you know, Bill, it's, it's been, it's been very hard. And I, you know, I first want to say that we have to acknowledge that this has been incredibly hard for everybody. And we're, as you said, we're into our third year. Uh, None of us expected to be where we are now. Uh, when, you know, a year ago, I would not predict that we're going to be where we are now. And I think this, this basically pandemic fatigue that we're all experiencing uh, is causing a lot of issues, including, you know, uh, people are not willing to, to mitigate. Uh, I think people are just, just dismissing this. And I think part of what has happened is that we have heard over and over, oh, this is just only a cold and, you know, we have enough immunity. And while we don't have any, any data to support a lot of those claims uh, at this point in time, I think this is driving uh, many people to have incredible resistance about doing the kind of layer of precautions that you need to do. And when you combine the high infectivity of the, of the Omicron variant, because this is one of the most infectious agents I've ever seen, combined with people not taking appropriate precautions because they're, they're tired of it, then then you have a lot of cases and you have a lot of infections and you have a lot of transmissions. The holidays uh, we were know- particularly, particularly difficult, right? Because, again, people travel, people, uh, you know, uh, went visit family, people got together. So we're going to see even more infections as a result of that. Um, we, we heard on uh, NPR News just before the show uh, CDC saying, uh, Dr. Del Rio, that uh, they believe that we'll reach a peak on the Omicron a surge sometime in mid-January, but that we could see uh, an explosive number of cases, as you suggest, uh, before then. Is, is there a reason? What, what, what would lead CDC or what leads public health officials like yourself to look at a peak and have some able, ability to determine when it might come? 
Well, you know, I think it's very important to understand the transmission dynamics of this, this agent. I think one of the issues that we are struggling with is that the cases being reported as high as they are clearly no longer represent all the cases out there because a lot of people are getting tested at home in home testing, and if they're testing positive at home, they're not reporting those results. So there may be many, many more cases out there than what we, what, what we know about, right? So I think one of the issues is the, the, the undercounting of cases is actually a driving sort of some, some of what's going on. I think there's some people that even say, do we really need to track cases anymore? Because the reality is that that they're not me a good indicator, but the CDC's uh, a modeling center is really trying to predict what's going to happen. And I think it's really important to understand the transmission dynamics. And this virus, what we've seen in other places, is a very, very rapid peak. And if you look at the curve in the U.S., it's almost a straight line up. And we're hoping that once you reach a peak, then you're going to start coming down. And hopefully, like it has happened in South Africa and in the U.K., you may come down uh, fairly quickly thereafter. So I tell people that I look at the Omicron strain like a tsunami coming our way. You know, we need to we need to go to, to high you know high land, get away from the water, and and hopefully try to avoid infection over the next uh, you know two to to four weeks. And if you can do that in the next two to four, maybe six weeks, I think we'll be in better shape. My my challenge is that we still have a, a lot of people uh, uh, being admitted to the hospital, and I think we need to understand that that hospitalizations have gone up. Uh, 20 to 30% of those hospitalizations are people that, you know, we are testing everybody coming into the hospital. We've been doing that for a long time. 20 to 30% are people that are coming in with a car wreck or a, a, a you know, bone fracture or some other illness who test positive for COVID. In other words, they have COVID, but they don't have COVID that disease that puts them in the hospital. Something else is putting them in the hospital. But you do have uh, also people that are coming in who actually have COVID, the disease, and some of those are ending up in the ICU. I would say the great majority of those are people who are unvaccinated. And I continue to emphasize, if you get vaccinated and you get infected with COVID, you were likely going to not, you're going to get a, a, hit, a cold, you're going to feel sick, but you're probably not going to end up in the hospital and certainly you're not going to end up in the ICU but the problem is we still have a lot of people in our country who are not vaccinated, and that is driving still a lot of transmission in our communities and a lot of hospital, uh, hospitalizations. Um, I want to get uh, Tamara and Ellen into the conversation. Before I do, briefly, I just want to go over where we stand today and get your reaction to it. Um, so as of yesterday, just yesterday, uh, uh, Georgia Department of Public Health reported 17,641 new cases uh, positive cases. As you point out, there may be many more because we can't be certain uh, that everybody who has it has actually been tested for it. Um, there were 18 people who died, sadly. But but here's a number that really startled me, and I, I'd, I'd love for your thoughts on this. Um, a, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, um, as of yesterday, there were 54,958 PCR tests reported back to them. And of those, 38.6% were positive. That's 21,000 of those people had were tested positive for COVID. Now, I, as I recall, we always say that when you get over 10% in te- positive testing rates, you're really in trouble. 
Well, absolutely. And I think what it tells you is that when you get that high positivity rate in the PCR, it's also a reflection that you're not doing enough testing, right? Because there's clearly a lot of the people that are coming in to get tested are the people that are having symptoms and that are sick. So one of the things that it's telling us is is the need for more testing. And again, testing is, is, is how you diagnose people. Early diagnosis is important because, you know, you, you, as soon as you you find out that you have this virus, if you can isolate, you'll prevent infecting other individuals. So early testing is really important, but there simply is not enough testing capacity right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that the Department of, of, of Public Health is working very, very hard to set up more testing sites and to make more testing capabilities. But the reality is that, you know, we have, we have always been behind uh, in testing when we need it in, in our country from the very beginning of the pandemic. And I think that the, the inability to have enough testing when, when we really need it has been a big problem. I'm, I'm still quite disappointed that, you know, you can't find rapid tests. And, and, and those are very useful tools uh, as a way to know if you have been infected or not. Jamar? Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally for me, ahead of the holidays, um, you know, I went to a, a small holiday party before I went to go see my parents. Somebody ended up testing positive, and being able to hunt down a test on quick notice ended up being quite the nightmare. Um, I, I managed to get through a testing site in Druid Hills uh, a couple days before the holiday in about an hour and a half, but I had one friend who waited for, for five hours. And that makes it really, really hard. And I, I think a lot of people might have forgotten a test just knowing, well, that's a headache. I don't have five hours I can take off from work. Um, it seems like now there, there's a sizable investment now in trying to get at-home tests into pharmacies. And I noticed a, a little bit more availability, at least where I was in, in rural Virginia over the holidays. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up a little bit more in, in Georgia so that when you do start feeling signs of being sick, you can just take a test at home and, and not have to worry about hunting down a, a PCR test out in the wild, or at least just for that initial you know, making sure, um, you know, I can live my life or, or do I really need to find one? So hopefully it'll get a little better. I know the Biden administration wants to buy something like, I, I believe, a half billion um, at-home tests. And so hopefully it'll be easier to find. Tamar, before we move on to Ellen, you, you had some interesting data that uh, you were looking to share about where CDC stands right now in terms of various recommendations, guidances, that sort of thing. Why don't you, uh, I'd love to hear uh, Dr. Del Rio's response to some of what you'd gathered Well, this is a a news release that the CDC released about five minutes ago saying that they're updating their recommendation for when many people can get a booster shot of Pfizer. And they said they're going to shorten the interval from six months to five months uh, for a booster shot. Uh, They also said that they're recommending that for for five to 11 year olds who are moderately to severely immunocompromised, uh, they're saying that you can get a a booster shot. uh, something, let's see, 28 days after their second shot. So, so Dr. Del Rio, uh, your, your thoughts on, on CDC's efforts to try to get people protected more quickly um, on, at, at this stage? Well, you know, I, Bill, I think it's really important that we, we get people vaccinated and, and we get people also boosted. The problem is that the boosting, uh, you know, we, we can't beat this pandemic uh, just by boosting, right? You know, now Israel is giving a fourth booster. And uh, at some point in time, we need to realize that we need to also to vaccinate the world. 
and and we cannot just continue to act locally. We need to think about this a pandemic, and we need to act globally. Ellen? Yeah, good morning. Uh, I, one of my recent articles that I reported on was about the people who've had babies during the pandemic. These are the, the parents of children under five years old. And I've seen some reporting that Pfizer is looking at splitting the dose into threes. And I, I just wanted to, to follow up with you and find out where where Pfizer and, and other manufacturers are with developing vaccines for those under five. Well, you know, Dr. Uh, Del Rio? Vaccines, vaccines are being developed for kids under five, but there was recently a data from the, the Pfizer vaccine that, uh, that it did not work for kids under five. Uh, probably in, you know, uh, so they're looking at, at what, uh, 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 what else to do to, uh, to, to change the immunogen and to change the protection. And I, I tell you, I mean, as a, as a, as a grandparent of, uh, of, uh, of two kids that are under five that were born during the pandemic, it's something that we are all uh, obviously very concerned about. We don't want the kids to get infected. But, but so far, the, you know, the, the Pfizer is, is looking at is maybe sometime, you know, in the first half of this year to have, to have better, uh, better data and vaccines for kids under five. At this point in time, what we need to tell parents of kids under five is that the best way to protect the kids is to have, is to have everybody around those kids vaccinated, right? And to be sure that the parents are vaccinated to prevent taking kids to places that are crowded or where they can be infected. But again, at the end of the day, if, if the kids get infected, while we are seeing a spike in hospitalizations in kids, the reality is those hospitalizations are not are just at the same level as hospitalization for other respiratory viruses such as RSV or influenza. So we also need to to make uh, make parents realize that that you know this is this is concerning, but they should not be comp- totally scared. I think we need to to really be a little more uh, more look at the data and and realize that that while kids can get sick and end up in the hospital it's going to be the minority of kids who get infected that that happens. So as we were uh, getting set for the show today, I, I looked at uh, children and vaccine rates in Georgia. I mean, I guess the starting point, Dr. Del Rio, was to say we are still at a point where only 53% of Georgians are fully vaccinated and a far smaller uh, percentage, I think 30-plus percent, have had a booster shot in addition to the two vaccines. By the way, of course, Dr. Del Rio, there's now questions as to what we mean when we say fully vaccinated. Does that mean two shots or three, right? That's something that we have to start thinking about as well, correct? Well, you know, absolutely right, Bill. I mean, first of all, yes, we are stuck around 50 summit percent and it really hasn't gone up that much. And, and that is part of the problem that we have. I think there, there are two issues that I think need to be mentioned. Number one, uh, we know that, uh, especially against Omicron, prior infection offers no protection. So there are many people who have not been vaccinated who say, well, I have, quote, unquote, natural immunity and therefore I'm protected. Well, against Omicron, natural immunity offers essentially no protection. But we do know that if you had prior infection and you get even one dose of vaccine or two doses of vaccine, you actually are very well protected. So I am hesitant to remind, to, to, to make sure, I'm hesitant to 
recommend boosting for absolutely everybody because people who had prior infection do not need a third shot. Two shots for them may be sufficient. Uh, but we need to get people vaccinated, and we need to start by by approaching people who have not yet been vaccinated. And that's, you know, that 47% of people in Georgia who haven't been vaccinated, that really is why we're still having a lot of people admitted to the hospital and people still, you know, sick and dying with this disease. And, and we could potentially avoid that by increasing our vaccination rates. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and let, let's move on with some of the uh, numbers about vaccinations. Um, uh, Ellen, uh, you've been spending a lot of time reporting on what's happening in the schools. Uh, the latest figures that I've seen from the Georgia Department of Public Health on vaccine rates for children are these. Uh, ages 5 to 9, only 14% have had a shot. 10 to 14, only 36% have had a shot. The number goes up substantially uh, once you reach 15 to 19. That's 52%. But, Ellen, if we continue to have these low vaccination rates, it strikes me that it creates issues for how schools can possibly uh, bring students in safely. It, it does. And the idea that we need to keep schools open and we need to protect kids from having their education disrupted, it, it would seem that more people would want to get them vaccinated so that they could continue attending school. And I, I know, Dr. Del Rio, you've cautioned that parts of the state that are more, more rural are going to see higher numbers. It, it seems that Hancock County has actually been the per capita per capita leader in COVID deaths. And it seems like now 1% of that county has died of the disease. So I'm curious to know, you know, not only in, in the metro areas, but also rural parts of the state, how is going back to school going to affect spread in those communities? Dr. Del Rio? Well, I think it's very important that, that we, uh, we realize that getting kids back in school is, is truly important. We cannot have kids continue to have um, you know, distance education. It, it, it works for some, but it creates, it increases the disparities. And for many kids, going to school is only, not only important for their education, but it's also important for their mental health and, quite frankly, for their nutrition. Uh, I remind people that in, in order to open the economy to go to work, you have to get kids in school, right? Because if you don't have kids in school, parents therefore have to stay home. So we have to do everything we can to protect uh, our, our schools and to make sure that the schools can remain open and the kids and cannot get don't get infected and for that we have to use a multi-layer approach and you know vaccines are important but they're not sufficient uh, having masking in schools high quality masking doing testing in schools uh, doing good ventilation uh, opening windows etc are all things that are going to be important in order to prevent transmission in the schools this can be done but it requires this multi-layer approach so part of the problem that we've had is is we seem to want this magic bullet right and the the vaccine has been sort of this magic bullet that everybody puts all its hopes on and i think what this virus is teaching us is the vaccines are useful they're very important but they're not sufficient and if you don't use a multi-layer approach you 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 have have a problem and that's why Again, I go back to this testing issue. Had we had enough testing available for schools to test regularly, 
we could be in a much better shape as far as opening schools. And it's not just a matter of testing kids when they return from the holidays. It literally is going to have to be, you know, weekly or twice-weekly testing of kids and people in schools in order to prevent. You will have cases, but you want to prevent outbreaks. And if you do that, you can keep your schools functioning and, and, and doing it in a safe way. And we've seen Mara, you want to I jump mean, in? a lot of these... Sure. I mean, you've seen a lot of the these issues pop up on the campaign trail as well. And I think that's really complicating a lot of the efforts from from public health officials. You know, we saw a statement from former Senator David Perdue, who's running for governor uh, over the weekend, saying that kids should be in the classroom. He, he kind of warns about uh, what he calls top down decisions that are setting our kids back in terms of having uh, virtual learning. And, uh, you know, it's it's very much becoming part of the, the mainstream kind of Republican in line now that it needs to be, you know, a parent's decision uh, about whether it should be virtual or, or in person. And, and I know that that's also complicating what you guys are, are trying to do to tamp down on infections in schools. So, uh, Dr. Del Rio, um, we're going to get to a break. But before we do, and as long as we're talking about schools, um, we just learned that the Gwinnett County schools are going to begin. They're coming back from the holiday break. They start again on Thursday. They are going to have in-person classes. Uh, I don't know whether masks are mandatory or not. If there's a Gwinnett County parent out there who's listening to the show and, and knows, let us uh, know the answer to that. A parent, I think they're, they're um, uh, not necessarily mandatory, but voluntary, but I don't know. Cobb County starts tomorrow, and we know they're going to be back in class uh, uh uh, not doing virtual learning. And we know there's been issues all along with parents who are fighting a mask mandate there. Clayton, DeCab, Forsyth, Fulton, and Rockdale come back from the holidays with virtual uh, learning. So, Dr. Del Rio, I, it, is it right now, if you don't have a mask mandate in place for a child um, and you don't have testing, are you looking for trouble in, in your particular school? I mean, I think so. I think, again, if you, if you want to do this, you, I mean, I'm all in favor of, of opening schools and having kids go to school, but we've got to do it in a safe way, especially in the midst of this, of, this, of this surge. And if you cannot implement all the different layer protection that is necessary, you know, vaccination of everybody eligible for vaccination, masking, uh, testing, then you're better off, you know, during the next, you know, we talked about the peak in the next three or four weeks to actually call virtual for the first three or four weeks and then return in, in person. But you can't have it both ways. I mean, if you say, you know, kids need to be back, let's do it with all the necessary protections so the, the kids can go back safely. Sam Burmistos just uh, told me that, in fact, yes, Gwinnett County Schools are imposing a mask mandate when they start in-person classes tomorrow. Thanks for that. That's important, uh, Sam. Uh, we got a lot of questions that I'd really like to get to, and I'm sure that our panel would too. But we've got to get to a break right now. When we come back, one of the first questions I have is, have a lot of us been wearing the wrong masks? There's new evidence that suggests maybe some people are. We'll do that after these messages. <laughs> Dr. Carlos Del Rio of the AJC's Tamar Hallerman and GPB's Ellen Eldridge join us for today's show. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, um, a, a while back, quite a while back, my family and I all switched to KN95 masks. Um, we'd been wearing cloth masks 
And it, it turns out maybe that was a good decision because there's new guidance that suggests that cloth masks may not be at all effective, particularly against the Omicron strain. What, what, do you, what can you uh, help us understand about all that? Well, again, what you need to have is a high-quality mask. And, you know, how you do a high-quality mask, it's, it, it really varies. But you have to do two things with masking. You have to, have, you have to wear a high-quality mask, and you have to wear it well. I think some of the issues that I see is, you know, people, people have different face uh, shapes, right? So, for example, my wife has a small shape, face, and a lot of the masks out there don't really fit her well. They sort of flounder all over the place. So you need to be sure that the mask fits well and that it covers you appropriately, and, and that it's a high-quality mask, a, a multi-layer mask. So when people say, well, a cloth mask is not sufficient, if it's a multi-layer cloth mask, it may be good enough. Uh, but you can also do, for example, a surgical mask, uh, and on top of your surgical mask, put a cloth mask. Uh, you can also do a, wear a, a KN95. I mean, I think you need to be sure that it's a high-quality mask. Uh, if a mask is not a multi-layer mask, if it's not, there's not going to be a high, and doesn't fit well, it's not going to protect you as much. And again, part of the issue of masking, we have to go back, is we need to get everybody masked because, you know, you're wearing a mask, and the main reason you're wearing a mask is actually to protect others. It protects you some, but it also protects others. If you're infected, you're preventing transmission to others. I remind a little bit is the reason why a surgeon wears a mask. When, when I go into the operating room, I'm wearing a mask to prevent my germs going into the incision, into the patient, right? So I'm protecting that individual, and that's why you wear a high-quality mask. So wear a mask, but make sure everybody's wearing it, and wear it appropriately. As I said, I'm, I can be in the grocery store and other places and see people wearing a mask under their nose, you know, almost down to their face, sometimes just hanging in their neck. You know, that's not a mask, and you need to, you need to realize that if you're not wearing it appropriately, you're not doing the right thing. By the way, just to, uh, to make sure I understand, when you refer to a surgical mask, you're talking about those powder blue uh, masks with folds and elastic uh, uh, straps for the ears. Is that what a surgical is that, that a surgical that, mask? That's what we call a surgical mask. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but you should have a, an additional um, mask beyond that when you're out and about. Is what you're saying? You know. If, if that surgical mask, mask fits well, you may be well, good enough with a surgical mask. Again, it's, it's an issue of okay. not, only, not only the mask you wear, but how you wear it and whether it fits in your face well or not. Um, tomorrow, Ellen, uh, tomorrow first, I, please uh, feel free if you have some questions you'd like to ask uh, uh, Dr. Del Rio about where, we, what, where we're heading with this or what we need to do to protect ourselves. Ellen, you go first, because I, I have a bigger question for Dr. Del Rio that'll change the direction of the conversation a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, before we switch Ellen? text and, and, yeah, before we talk about something different, I'm, I'm curious about the availability, not only of the rapid test, but the masks, the, the KN95s. Are, are these widely available for the people who are interested in protecting themselves? Uh, you know, you know, they're not. And sometimes the masks that you get, can get on the Internet and Amazon, et cetera, may not be of the high quality just because it says KN95. So I think the, the issue is, is we need reliable uh, and available sources of good high-quality masks. Uh, sometimes you can find them in, 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 in pharmacies and in grocery stores and, and get them there. But the, the, the reality is that uh, the availability of masks is still not uh, uh, what you would like it to be, especially for high-quality masks. My question for, for Dr. Del Rio is kind of looking ahead and, and how you think this pandemic ends, if it ends at all. Does this 
you know, are we just going to cycle through various variants for until the end of time? Are we, is this going to eventually look a little more endemic, like a flu where every year there's a new strain and some people die, but for the most part, most of the population is okay. How, where do we go from here? Well, you know, I mean, I think we go, we go in different, uh, it's hard to predict the future, right? And this pandemic has shown us how, how hard that is. But you know, if we go back in history and when we read what happened with the Spanish flu and how did the Spanish flu ended, uh, which was, the, you know, the big influenza pandemic of 1918, sort of the, the mother of all pandemics until we had this one. You know, when, the, when we look at data is the Spanish flu, you know, about a third of the global population caught the flu back then and about 50 million people died. This was about 2.5% of the entire global population at that time. So even though we've had, you know, 200 million infections, we're still nowhere close to that one-third of the global population, right? So hopefully we won't get there. Uh, now, back then they didn't have vaccines. Now we have vaccine. So the Spanish flu ended when people, enough people had caught the infection and recovered or caught it and died, and as a result of that, you, you, you achieve the so-called herd immunity, that level of protection in which there was no more susceptible individuals to infect. Uh, so far, COVID has only infected about about 10 to 15 percent of the global population, uh, which, you know, compared to a third of the global population, we're, we're still pretty far from there, right? Uh, so uh, what we would think is that with vaccinations, we're going to, between infections and vaccinations, we may be able to get to that magic point. And the point there is COVID will end when we increase global vaccination to the level necessary in order to prevent transmission from happening. Think about all these variants. All these variants, Delta emerge in India, you know, Omicron emerge in South Africa. So we need to think about how do we get people around the world vaccinated so we can actually slow down transmission and prevent severe disease. And at that point in time, we will be in the road to ending Omicron. Uh, I suspect that COVID is going to be with us for a long time, it may become sort of what we call endemic. That means it may become part of the normal respiratory viruses with peaks going up and down just like the flu does. And, and it may be that we need, you know, weekly immunizations. But, but at this point, uh, we really don't know. At this point, my, my whole point is we gotta, t we gotta vaccinate people. We gotta vaccinate people globally. And in that sense, I think we, and, and the collective we, meaning, you know, the global leaders, including the U.S., has not done a good job. We have looked at global vaccination as almost charity, or we're going to give you some vaccines that we have left over, as opposed to really having a strategy to get global vaccination happening in an effective way. Ellen, then, you want to uh, jump in? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, Carlos, the, what's the difference between the natural immunity versus the vaccinated immunity? Because there's some people out there who simply aren't interested in being vaccinated. They've, they've had COVID once, twice before. H how is that going to affect the overall herd immunity? Well, you know, uh, before, I mean, I think the problem is before Omicron and after Omicron, right? Before Omicron, there clearly has, having had uh, infection, and I, I like to call it infection-induced immunity because all immunity is natural, whether you get it from infection or from a vaccine, is not unnatural. You know, it's, it's, it's immunity. But immunity from infection offered protection, 
uh, of, of significant protection in, in a lot of individuals. Not in everybody. It tends to be very variable. Some people may have very little protection. Some people may have very good protection. But in those that offer protection, offer fairly good protection. What we're seeing with Omicron is that having previous infection offers very little protection. So even people that have had uh, infection uh, nowadays, my recommendation to them is get at least one dose of vaccine. Get at least some level of protection because if you get your natural, uh, your, your infection-induced immunity and you add vaccine immune immunity, you have something that we call hybrid immunity. And in fact, people who have had COVID and get vaccinated or who were vaccinated and then get COVID after that in the laboratory have the le best level of protection of anybody against this virus. Um, I want to revisit a question that um, has come up in conversations with you and other public health officials on the show over the months and see what we know today about this, Dr. Del Rio. Um, I remember back when I first got my vaccines, uh, reading enough information that suggested to me that even though I was unlikely to get COVID, that didn't mean that the virus couldn't enter my system and it might be possible for me, therefore, while I avoided disease, to spread the virus to other people. Is that the latest uh, uh, thinking about whether a person fully vaccinated, boosted, all of that, maybe uh, is housing the vaccine? Can we still shed virus? What do we know about that at this point? Well, we know that you can get infected and you can have uh, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. Again, a lot of those people that say I have no symptoms, when you talk to them, you know, they say, well, you know, I have a little nasal congestion, but it's my allergies or I have, you know, a head cold or whatever. They do have some symptoms. They're not fully, fully asymptomatic. Now, some people are asymptomatic like the day before, and then they can start sp spreading the virus even the day before. And that's why we recommend that people wear a mask, because the reality is, is by, you're wearing a mask to protect others. Let's suppose I got infected two days ago. Today I have the virus. I feel fine. I'm going to feel sick tomorrow, but I can still start spreading the virus about 24 to 48 hours before I develop symptoms. All right. Here's, you know, Tamar, this is partly why I think we continue to be so confused, uncertain. There's so much information that is we don't know about how this virus works, especially with the variants that continue to spread. And one of the things, I know, I don't want to turn this into a political conversation, but, but Tamar, I do think it's worth saying that um, the, the people who, in, who want to denigrate CDC, FDA, Anthony Fauci, whatever, um, they do it on the basis quite often of, well, look how many times they've been wrong. Look at how much misleading uh, information they've put out, how they've had to correct themselves. And the problem with that, Tamara, is it does confuse our understanding of how things are working, but it also ignores the fact that we're watching a virus unfold and the, and the heroic efforts to stop it unfold in real time. Things change, Tamara. And I think there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about how the scientific process works. You know, we are learning things in new time. We're getting new information every day. We're getting new variants all the time that behave different differently and affect different parts of the body. And so 
Um, that's the beauty of the scientific process is, is we get to learn new things and, and apply those new findings to kind of make things better. Um, and I, I think it's so easy to kind of dismiss things as, oh, well, yesterday you said this and today you say that. And so you must have been lying yesterday. Um, and, and I think we could do a much better job of teaching folks that, no, this is all part of the process and we're learning and doing better. And, and that's not a lie. That's just how science works. Dr. Del Rio, you certainly have had a close working relationship with CDC over the years, and you know that their reputation has uh, struggled uh, throughout the pandemic. It started back with the the Trump administration. Um, But even today, we we see people who question changes in CDC guidelines. So one example of that would be uh, CDC initially estimated that the vast majority of the infections uh, that uh, were being seen were Omicron, uh, and and Delta was fading a bit. They had to come back and revise that and say, well, in fact, fewer cases than we thought are Omicron, more are Delta. Delta is still the prevailing uh, disease. There was also some controversy when they uh, uh, announced new guidance just last week on the number of days you'd have to isolate if you test positive for the virus. It, 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 I can't imagine, Dr. Del Rio, a harder job in the world right now than the one that Rochelle Walensky and other public health officials, including perhaps at times yourself, have given how things continue to evolve. Well, Bill, let me just start by saying that, you know, we we have the privilege of having the CDC here in Atlanta, and uh, and I know a lot of the people that work at CDC, and they're some of the most uh, committed, dedicated individuals who truly have public health at the center. I mean, they are part of a, many of them are part of what we call the Commission Corps, which means, you know, they're really an army of public health workers that are working. So they've been working throughout this pandemic in, in just incredible ways. And, and so it, it, they're exhausted at this point in time. And I would just say that I give all my recognition to the work that CDC is doing. And it's tough. You know, you're, 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 you're building a plane as you fly it, right? You're making recommendations on the fly. You're adapting as things change. You're trying to make the best for public health, but you're making decisions based on limited information. And over and over, you realize that gee, I wish I knew today what I'm going to learn tomorrow because I could make a much better recommendation if that's the case. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, I think we all need to recognize, number one, that, that we're making recommendations based on the knowledge we have. But number two, that some of the recommendations we made could be wrong and were wrong. And I think about the beginning of the pandemic when we said, you know, you don't need a mask. And the message was really don't get a mask right now because we need the mask for healthcare workers, but that translated into you don't need a mask. And then that moved into, well, now you need a mask. And now we're telling people, now you need you know, a high-quality mask. All that change creates a lot of distrust in people. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to continuously communicate, and we need to communicate what we, don't, what we know, but more importantly, we need to communicate what we don't know, but we're still working on trying to investigate. Uh, I, I think one of the things that will be really important is to have, you know, uh, you know, daily communications on this, daily press briefings. I think a lot of the, a lot of the information would be much better if we had a more uh, fluid communication between uh, the CDC director and the press. 
rather than having uh, sort of this, this stage up a couple of times a week uh, White House press mm-hmm. conferences, because I think you would be much better able to communicate where we are and where we want to be. And, and the reality is, is we don't know what the future holds. It's going to be very hard to know that. And people, uh, uncertainty creates a lot of mistrust and a lot of, of, uh, of concern in people. And relieving uncertainty and anxiety is also part of what we need to do. Ellen? And yeah, Dr. Del Rio, as we look ahead to the future, I'm, I'm also incredibly curious and in following the ideas that this virus being new, we don't know exactly how it's going to affect people in, in the future. And, and I'm not sure how much insight you have into all that. I know people who struggle with substance use disorder, uh, they're, they're at higher risk and they're probably not thinking about the importance of avoiding the virus. But how can the virus, when it gets in, you know, gets into your brain and the long COVID, uh, mental health, all that, what are, what are we learning as we head into the third year about how the virus can reemerge after infection? Well, you know, we still need, we still have a lot to learn about long COVID. And I think trying to understand long COVID, it continues to be important. And there's a lot of efforts being done by the NIH to try to, to better understand long COVID. Uh, the best protection against long COVID is not to get COVID to begin with, right? And the best protection is to get vaccinated. So, again, the most important thing is to remind people, get vaccinated, wear a mask, try not to get infected, because at the end of the day, that's how you prevent COVID. That's how you prevent long COVID and all its other complications. Um, okay, we've got to get to the final break of the show. And uh, when we come back, we'll have just a few minutes to uh, ask Dr. Del Rio a few more uh, questions about how we're dealing with COVID-19 today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Earlier, earlier in the show, um, I gave you some numbers on the number of new uh, infections as of yesterday. Uh, Sam Burmistoss points out those were actually from Friday. Uh, Georgia DPH, Sam tells me, was so overwhelmed over the weekend with new figures that they won't have their new Monday figures out until uh, uh, later today. Nevertheless, we can say we've got a lot of infections in the state of Georgia. <clears throat> Dr. Del Rio, a couple of questions about daily behavior. Uh, should my wife and I, my wife and I sort of started having people come over to the house, one or two couples at a time, uh, because we felt things were getting better. This was in the late summer and the fall. Uh, should we go back to avoiding that kind of contact? Should all of us be careful about that sort of, uh, gathering? Well, you know, Bill, again, you can do it in a safe way, right? You can uh, make sure everybody that is gathering, it's, it's vaccinated. Make sure everybody that is gathering is asymptomatic, and if you can gather outdoors, if the weather is nice, try to gather outdoors. I mean, I think we, we need to continue socializing in some sort of way. We need to figure out, you know, wear a mask if you're going to be indoors with a lot of people. But I think we, we need to – we have to continue doing some degree of socializing. Again, that's when rapid tests would be helpful, right? You can even then say, we'll test everybody before they come in. So there are ways to do this safely. If we, if we have the appropriate layering and appropriate thoughts in place. I just think that this is what Omicron is, is doing, right? Is it, we need to remind ourselves that this is not business as usual. And that is what's very hard for people. As I said at the beginning of the show, people are tired. People are, are, have had it. And, and that is the toughest part of it. This is, you know, we're, we're going up Mount Everest, and we thought we were at the peak, and it turns out we still have a ways to go, and now is the toughest part of the, of, the, of the hike. And that is really, really hard for people. 
Uh, if we can even find at-home uh, rapid tests, um, how much, in it, and if Tamar Hellerman, who had trouble finding one for a while, if she wants to go visit with friends in two days, how far in advance does she have to have a rapid test or how close to the event to feel relatively safe that the test, which ha- has her as negative, uh, is, is going to be meaningful when she finally gets together? Well, you know, Bill, what I what I recommend, for example, I went to visit my uh, 90, 87-year-old mother who uh, over the holidays. And, what you know, if you look, if you're able to get yourself one of those packages of, of for example, the Binax test or many other tests, usually two tests come in the package. And the reason you have two tests is so you can test twice, right? And the recommendation, because, again, the sensitivity of this test is not as good as a PCR. So test yourself 24 hours before you go meet with that person, and then test yourself literally as you go into the door to meet that person. And if you do those twice, t- twice negative testing, uh, you will be fine. You will be protected. You will be able to confidently uh, be, uh, know that you're not infected when you're when you're doing that. Uh, tomorrow again, I, I don't want to make this a political show, but the fact of the matter is the absence of rapid tests, the difficulty in getting a hold of tests, or you trying to find a test at a testing site uh, is really a failure of government, both federally and perhaps in the state as well. You know, in Europe, these tests are widely available. You can get them for free through the government or, or for only, you know, a couple dollars. So absolutely, it seems like just now we're waking up to the fact that uh, these need to be readily available. Um, I have a, a final question for Dr. Del Rio, if, if there's time. Yeah, we got about two minutes, so have at it. You know, we're we're heading into our, our third year of this pandemic, variant after variant. I'm curious, what keeps you up at night as you look toward the future? You know, what keeps me up at night is to, is to think about the people that have already died and the the thousands of people who have lost somebody and who will continue to lose people and who continue to uh, and is going to therefore leave a lot of of suffering going forward, right? You think about there was a report recently published by the COVID Collaborative estimating that about 180,000 children in this country have lost one or both parents uh, or caregivers as a result of COVID. So that has significant implications for mental health going forward. So for me, the implications are not what happens today, but what's going to be left over as a result of the pandemic. Uh, well, you um, you leave us with a lot to think about, Dr. Del Rio, and our hearts, of course, go out to everybody who has lost family, loved ones to this terrible, terrible pandemic. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thank you so much for being back with us again, Ellen Eldridge and uh, Tamar Hallerman. I appreciate your contributions today as well. And Dr. Del Rio, uh, since we talked about it a little while ago, uh, you and your colleagues in public health, I've said it on this show before, continue to be my genuine heroes as we struggle with the ongoing uh, situation that we find ourselves in. So again, thank you for being with us. We're completely out of time for today's show. Um, I'm Bill Nygut. I'm back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy in the face of the pandemic. Wear your mask and get a booster shot if you haven't done that. Take care, everybody. 